Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic very important to the Madison program, statesmanship, with Professor Daniel Mahoney, who's the winner of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's 2023 Conservative Book of the Year Award for his book, The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. In addition to being a professor emeritus at Assumption University and fellow at the Claremont Institute, Dr. Mahoney was a 2020 to 2021 Garwood Visiting Fellow here at the Madison Program. So we're very proud of his achievement and excited to bring to you this discussion, which is going to range from talking about political thinkers from Cicero and Burke to Churchill and Havel. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show, and congratulations again on the achievement. It's really exciting. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so kicking this off, there are a lot of words when you're talking about you know, how to do politics well. It's difficult, I think, for it not to kind of dissolve into platitudes or just things everyone would maybe agree on. So talk to me a little bit about what you think the word statesman brings to the conversation that's maybe absent from the way that we generally discuss what makes a good politician. A statesman is a old-fashioned word. Um, most contemporary scholars and politicians and journalists rather thoughtlessly use the term leader or leadership. But we have to think twice about that term. You know, the Federalist Papers, Publius is quite critical of the idea of leadership. And in the 20th century, all the totalitarian tyrants called themselves leader. Mm. Most famously, Adolf Hitler was the Fuhrer, Mussolini was the Duce, Stalin was the Vosged. You know, leadership has at least a connotation of somebody of demagoguery. Uh, I don't think that's how most people use it, but it does have that connotation of, you know, Mm. a person in a position to manipulate uh, through demagogic action and rhetoric. Um, Statesmanship is a qualitative word. So Mm. it includes a sense of evaluation. Right. So I would say that central, central to the argument of my book and simply central to what I would call the political phenomena, the way the political nature of human beings comes to sight is... Um, we have to uh, be alert to the real qualitative distinction between the statesman who embodies a sense of the political good, who uh, is not simply interested in his own self-interest, although I think nothing good occurs in politics without ambition. I adopt a phrase from the political scientist Robert Faulkner who speaks about honorable ambition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Herndon, uh, Lincoln's law partner, said he was a little engine of ambition. But <laughs> Lincoln wouldn't do anything, you know. He, uh, Lincoln had a sense of dignity. He had a sense of certain first principles of morality and politics that informed statesmanship. So there's, a, there's obviously the primordial distinction between the statesman and the tyrant. Right. You know, the the political philosopher Leo Strauss in a eulogy he gave for Winston Churchill on January 20th, 1965, a spontaneous eulogy in his classroom at the University of Chicago, he says there's something 
utterly revealing about that contrast and contest between the magnanimous statesman and the insane tyrant at the mm. beginning of World War II. Now, obviously, most politics is not reducible to that distinction. Right. Um, there are, there is, of course, such a thing as political mediocrity. That would include, I think, the vast majority of political right. actors. But even there, there are many. I'm using that in a look, looking from above, you might say. <laughs> but there are many more or less ordinary and decent political men and women who are competent, intelligent, public spirited. I think it's always best to judge things in light of the high. Mm. When we when we judge things, including political form, in light of the low. We end up with the dominant vernacular of our day. Everything is power and power seeking. Mm. But if Jesus, Hugh Hefner, Hitler, Stalin, you know, the governor of New Jersey are all <laughs> power seeking animals, it doesn't tell us very much about politics. It doesn't tell us about the aims, the ends, and the purposes of free and decent politics. And so power tells us nothing. Power is an end, and it means. Mm -hmm. But if power becomes the end of political life and political action and judgment, then we're just left with nihilism. Right. And we're in but the problem is uh, our contemporary social science, and that would include uh, histor history is not exactly a social science, but our historians, our political scientists, um, social scientists more broadly, journalists, commentators, they have this ink and they want to make everything more scientific, more measurable. But mm. the fact is the really important political phenomena are, it's not that they're not empirical. They're very empirical. Hitler's very empirical. Right. You know? Lincoln's right. very empirical. But they're, um, they have to be uh, 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 without qualita the qualitative judgments that are intrinsic in the things themselves. And I quoted Leo Strauss, who once said, a value-free description of a concentration camp would be a, a bitter right. satire. You know, there's no way of describing, and I'm, I'm giving, we don't always want to do the reductio ad Hitlerum, you know. Right. Uh, uh, but there's no way of scientifically or accurately or realistic describing Hitler's degraded tyranny mm. without making qualitative judgments, because those qualitative judgments are inherent in right. the things themselves. So that's why I think in politics, I want to, there's not a lot of statesmen around. Yeah. We live in it. We live in an age. Lord Bryce, who was a great uh, British diplomat and men of letters, kind of political scientist, historian, he wrote a very great book, uh, first published in 1888, called The American Commonwealth. It's like 2,000 pages <laughs> long. And Robert Nisbet, the uh, sociologist, once said, it would be as widely read and esteemed as Tocqueville's Democracy in America, but it's just a little bit below it. But in that book, 1888, hmm. he had a chapter, Why Great Men Are No Longer Elected President, you know, hmm. 1888. So um, I did not write a book that aimed at um, dismissing everything that was lower you know, than you might say this high uh, ideal of statesmanship but I wrote a book in which I argue that without a serious and searching analysis and understanding of, you might say, political life at its heights, mm. we understand nothing, right? And I, I end my book, and this is something we return to later. Mm. I talk about, I use a phrase from Roger Scruton, the, the great British conservative philosopher who popularized the term, the culture of repudiation. 
The dominant ethos in the academy and scholarship is really to tear down, yeah. to, to repudiate greatness, to deny it. In fact, uh, you know, we, we sometimes call these, these thinkers uh, who the masters of suspicion, you know, Freud, <laughs> Marx, they're epigony, the deconstruction and so well, Everything is to deconstruct, to show, mm. you know, notice even in grade school you're taught elitism is a bad thing. Well, why? Elites exist in every society. We want good elites, not bad ones, you know. Mm. So the culture of repudiation gets in the way of an appreciation of political things as they are. And I end the book by saying I have no recipe for recovering, you know, great statesmanship of a Lincolnian or Washingtonian or Churchillian sort. But we can begin by repudiating repudiation. Yeah. You know, the founders, for example, they were uh, they were imbued with with Plutarch. Mm. You know, they read about the great Romans and Greeks. And, you know, that knowledge of uh, not all of the figures in Plutarch are, are, are good, but all of them are great. Mm. And I think the ideal that, um, that uh, Plutarch defended and articulated was, you know, a model of politics that combined the good and the great. Uh, Tocqueville, and I'll end on this note, one said about Napoleon Bonaparte that he was as great as you could be without being good. <laughs> <laughs> Very apt. Um, Love that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask more about Plutarch, uh, but I don't want to let this detail slip past us because, you know, you talk about the importance of kind of moral virtue in politicians. And I think part of the reason there's been this trend towards empiricism is that people no longer feel comfortable deciding what moral virtue means. Um, and so you kind of talk about two strands of that in your book, the kind of Aristotelian uh, philosophical strand that then gets combined um, with the Christian strand. Talk a little bit to our listeners um, about what those two strands are. I mean, how can people think about whether it's appropriate yeah, to still incorporate yeah, No, those? no, no. Those are, those are great uh, questions and remarks. Let me begin by saying there's nothing moralistic about my approach. It's not preachy. Mm. It's... Uh, uh, I uh, when I talk about the moral virtues, I mean them in a very tough-minded mm. and realistic way. And I would say the approach, my, my approach is broadly Aristotelian, but Aristotle and his political science, uh, which doesn't provide us the answers, but it provides an approach for addressing the, the permanent nature and questions that inform human nature and political life. Aristotle was an empiricist. Yeah. But he had a much richer notion of empiric empiricism, mm. again, included the search for the best regime, the best possible regime. It was a qualitative political science because, you know, to come back to my earlier example, you cannot understand tyranny without describing what it is. Yeah. How can you describe the degradation of political life that is tyranny without moral judgments? But they have to be disciplined. They have to be empirical. Mm. And uh, I'm just as opposed to a, not to morality in politics, not to an ethical politics, but to a moralistic politics that think we never got our mm. hands dirty. The, right. the, the French Catholic poet and philosopher Charles Peggy once said, you know, Kant is famous, his philosophy associated with moral duty, the categorical comparative. And he said, the problem with the Kantians is not that they want us to have clean hands, is they want us to have no hands at all. Mm. So a statesman... You know, it's going to get dirty hands. Yeah. 
and he has to have hands. Right. But that doesn't mean that politics is just about the accumulation of power or that a realistic approach to politics is a Machiavellian count. Mm. Machiavelli famously says in uh, The Prince, Chapter 18, that a statesman should appear honest and good and virtuous without yeah. being so. Yeah. Okay. That's just not a true empiricism. Um, and what I resort to, I think the starting point, I think even for Christians, the starting point for an evaluation of the virtues that are applicable to civic life are what we used to call the, the hinge virtues, the cardinal virtues. Mm. Courage, uh, temperance or moderation, justice, and especially prudence. The Greek word for prudence was phronesis. And prudence did not mean hesitation. It did not mean, you know, not having the nerve to do something. It meant the practical wisdom to do the right thing at the right moment. Aristotle famously says, for example, that it's okay to be angry, but only anger in the right manner at the right time. You know, you know I think religious believers who believe in the truths of biblical religion don't hesitate to say there can be, you know, moral and not, not so much indignatious, but righteous anger, you know. Mm-hmm. Look at the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus is hardly nice all the time, yeah. you know. I mean, I think if you go looking to the Gospels for a nice Jesus, you're going to be sorely disappointed. So those virtues are very empirical. Courage uh, and moderation. Now, the subtitle of my book is Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. And I would say greatness, political greatness, is almost defined by this melding mm. of courage, but of an underlying moderation, um, an ability to take into account the legitimate interests and point of views of the full range of citizens, Hmm. but also a moderation in the sense of an appreciation of limits. True politics and true political philosophy is not an anti-utopian. It doesn't ignore evil in human nature. It doesn't uh, succumb to perfectionist schemes, you know. Um, on the other hand, it um, it takes seriously the idea of a common civic good. Um, as a Christianity, my argument in the book is something like this, or it's one of the strands that undergirds the the book. I argue that the classical notion of greatness of soul, magnanimity. As articulated, let's say, by Aristotle, um, and Aristotle calls it the crown of the virtues. There is no doubt that Aristotle's magnanimous man, his sort of haughty, supremely uh, self-confident magnanimous statesman, there's no doubt that he associates great deeds with good deeds. But there's an, an aristocratic auteur, you know, mm. and if you take that a little too far, you end up with somebody like Coriolanus in Shakespeare's play. Right. You know, somebody who feels himself too distinct. That's a radicalization of it. But I, in the book, I talk about how Cicero, who was certainly not a Christian, came before the Christian era, but he, uh, in a way, modified Aristotle's magnanimity to, to emphasize more, you know, an attitude of care and solicitude for ordinary people. 
and uh, perhaps a little bit more of an egalitarian understanding of the nature and purses in politics. And my book talks a lot, regardless of people's ultimate religious views and commitments, and those are very hard to ascertain, especially for political men. I think all the major figures that I treat in this book, after Cicero, that includes Washington and Alexis de Tocqueville and Abraham Lincoln and, and Winston Churchill and Charles de Gaulle and the Czech writer and dissident and President Václav Havel, they all um, are marked by a certain religious sensibility, some recognition that power is always under the ju- an authority or always under the judgment of God, that there are limits that have to be respected. So when I use that word moderation, I just don't mean political or practical moderation. I mean almost a spiritual or ontological mm-hmm. moderation where... You know, if a statesman or leader is imbued with a sense that ultimately um, things are not wholly in our own power, that we have to respect the natural order of things, the structure of reality, God's created order, that makes for it makes a huge difference. I think we see some of that in Lincoln's second inaugural where he reminds at the very end of the Civil War in April 1865 – he reminds his uh, interlocutors and listeners that the, both sides uh, in this great and terrible civil war are under the judgment of God. And they're under the judgment of God for the evil of slavery. And yet Lincoln never draws – he draws moderating, not fanatical conclusions from that, you know, with charity for all, you know. He draws peaceful conclusions from that. So it's a really very, very, very beautiful and memorable Address maybe the greatest thing ever said by an American president, and I think people like Churchill and De Gaulle in the 20th century. You know, they were Churchill had complicated views toward religion, but he was no atheist. De Gaulle, a great French statesman, was a serious Catholic. But they not only their opposition to totalitarian ideology and politics was partly rooted in this classical and Christian influence sense of limits and moderation. But they also thought we weren't just – they hardly ever talked. We're, we're fighting to preserve democracy against tyranny. Churchill said in his great uh, speech, the Finest Hour speech of June 18, 1940, what's at stake is the survival of Christian civilization. And that's what Nazism mm-hmm. and communism were trying to kill. Who thinks that way today? Who would say that the core of the West is a certain understanding of ethics and the dignity of the human person? That has a lot more to do with sort of a laundry list of ever-expanding rights, which is the contemporary way people think. Our our democracy is under assault, you know, and that can can mean, you know, an understanding of transgenderism that didn't exist an hour and a half ago, you know? And so they look, um, some of these figures look quite conservative because, I don't mean that in a narrow political sense, because unlike our contemporary culture of repudiation, they thought for all the imperfections and injustices that exist in any political order, they thought there was something well worth preserving in uh, Western liberty. And that uh, Western liberty is inseparable an understanding of the dignity of the human person that, um, you know, had, had it, was, it wasn't just about human rights. It was about some broader understanding of the 
you know, the, the, the natural foundations of human excellence and freedom. So hmm. that's really, I'm a little less interested in people's private religious convictions, though I speculate on that. You know, <laughs> I'm obliged to, you know, if you want to be empirical. But I'm more interested in how the combination of greatness, courage, moderation, and prudence that each of these great exemplars embodies is really unthinkable without something like Christianity. I mean, it's interesting to me that that is kind of the element of it that you dwell most on, because other than de Gaulle, none of the people that you list in your book were, as you put it, Orthodox Christians. Um, is there like... Oh, but they know. were deeply marked by... Tocqueville, you know, he went to church every Sunday. His thought is deeply imbued with Christian categories. He makes clear in his letters he doesn't uh, believe in everything he's supposed to believe, but he's certainly no atheist, and his... Moral understanding, his understanding, you know, he he hated theoretical and practical materialism. He defended the soul. Um, you know, and I just evoke Churchill's language. It's not just a political claim. It's that, that you know, so that Christian view of the human person is true. Lincoln, you know, was a free thinker. He was a student of Tom Paine's rationalistic writings when he was a young man. But he underwent a, a very deep spiritual evolution. I don't think he ever arrived at Orthodox Christianity, but his uh, his republicanism, his biblical republicanism, not only rhetorically, but his judgments about slavery are rooted in a certain account of natural law, natural justice, and human dignity that is, um, you know, unthinkable without Christianity. You know, we know the Bible countenances slavery, but not chattel slavery where human beings are reduced to the status of pigs or cows, you know? Yeah. You know, I... race slavery is something new under the sun yeah. and something deep in Lincoln's bones in his heart revolted against that, that mutilation of common humanity. And it wasn't just democracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I agree strongly that a lot of those views kind of have their intellectual roots in Christianity. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess one wonders if the moniker spiritual but not religious, which is usually used, I think, in conservative circles, certainly is kind of an insult a applies here. And also if because it made me think about the, the Nietzschean claim, I guess, that it would be impossible for, you know, a truly orthodox Christian to be a great statesman. I don't know if you have views well, on that. Um, well, a, a couple of things. One, um, they were not silly men who thought, uh, no, I don't think they defended spiritual or religion. They, 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 they knew what authentic religion was. They didn't want a society were full of doubt and radical doubt. Um, um, there's something so... None of them, I think, would have countenanced this terrible indifference. People who say I'm spiritual, not uh, religious, yeah. have never really engaged religion or religious truth or the question of God. It's it's laziness. It's moral indifference. So uh, it is possible to be heterodox mm. in some sense, not simply out of a sense of conscience or probity, just saying to yourself, I don't believe all of this. But they believed a lot of it. And again, I mentioned Tocqueville because Tocqueville, uh, for him, there was only one serious religion. Mm -hmm. It was the Catholic faith. He thought Protestantism was a halfway house toward uh, indifference. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said in the end, there will only be atheists and Unitarians and Catholics. That, that might be. But there was something. Of course, we know all sorts of mm -hmm. evangelical and other Christians who are very orthodox Christians. But. 
because of the absence of a strong principle of authority, he feared that it would drift toward free thinking and indifference. But look at the Catholic Church today. You've got a papacy that is drifting toward theological confusion, but you have the full force of the authority of Rome behind that. Yeah. No one ever imagined that possibility, you know? So, um, no, I don't think spiritual without being religious would be a good description of these men, but um, to say that they are deeply marked by the Christian proposition and by Christian centuries, um, but not fully Christian, that does suggest an ambiguity that says something about mm -hmm. modern civilization. And in the end, I think, to defend the view of the human person and to defend, you might say, the truths of Christianity, one probably needs, in the end, a more robust and orthodox articulation of Christianity. But these men are yeah. statesmen, you know? And, um, um, but one thing I, you know, my book is entitled The Statesman is Thinker, and I make clear, many of them wrote serious books, serious reflections, not just about political matters, but on higher things. Yeah. And, um, um, they thought about these problems. And, and, and I want to add, they all, uh, the modern figure's idea, what they all respected the religious nature of man. And I would say today the dominant ethos is either indifference or our secularism has become overtly yeah. hostile to, uh, to the Christian proposition, really hostile. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think any of them would have thought a decent civilization could survive with that level of kind of ignorant hostility to, you know, transcendental religion. Yeah. I mean, the statement that Tocqueville makes very much reminds me uh, of, I think, what a lot of Catholic integralists today say um, about the sort of inherent issues with American democracy. And I wonder kind of as a as a Catholic thinker who's written, you know, just now a whole book about uh, the individual, uh, what your views are on that, um, because it seems like the, the integralist kind of proposition is so rooted in kind of, you know, trust the system and trust well, to the... Tocqueville ho wholly opposed coercion in the matters yeah. of religion. And um, I'll give you, you know, one of the central arguments, uh, understanding Tocqueville's attitude toward religion in American democracy is sort of complex and dialectic, because on the one hand, he says the secret to the integrity of American republicanism, American democracy, is this coming together of the spirit of religion and the spirit of liberty. While in continental Europe, the friends of liberty and the friends of religion are often at odds. And many liberal movements took on a very anti-clerical and even anti-Christian cast. But Tocqueville also says religion was corrupted by being too directly and politically connected to what mm. turned out to be a superannuated body politic, the, the French old regime, the European mm. old regime. And Tocqueville actually thought separation of state of church and state. He didn't mean separation the way he didn't mean a, a political community that was indifferent to religion. The old view of separation of church and state was the political community affirms a transcendent source of our liberty, yep. that our liberty is under God. But we allow, we don't have an established church and we allow um, a multiplicity of religious uh, options, religious sects. Student once on an exam, by the way, spelled it religious sex, S-E-X. <laughs> Guess I'd never heard of sectarianism. You know? <laughs> but in any case, um, 
That's a very nuanced position because mm. there's an argument not for a wall of separation between religion and politics, which is undesirable, but for separation of church and robust religious liberty, but also a public acknowledging and affirmation of the connection between the spirit of religion and the spirit of liberty. That means, for example, statesmen would not be neutral between religion and atheism, you right. know? And uh, and by the way, even the fanatics, the Jacobins of the French Revolution, I mean, they made up their own religion, you know, the religion of the supreme cult of the supreme being and all that. Uh, Robespierre may have been a private atheist, but he didn't think you could have a republican mm. order that was atheist. The communists certainly thought that, you know, you know, Marx's famous disavowal of religion as this evil and corrupt opium of the people. But uh, um, no, so he would not have drawn integralist conclusions. The integralists are very ahistorical. I mean, um, the Catholic tradition which they appealed to was never theocratic. You know, mm. Galatius I in the fifth century had already laid out this pretty substantial separation of the realms. There's a version of that in, in uh, Augustine City of God. Um, temple authority is temple authority. Again, a secularism that acknowledged no transcendent source of our dignity and liberty would have been unthinkable uh, to uh, most thinkers in the broader Christian tradition. But um, no, I mean, uh, and, you know, the Catholic Church in, in the last 75 years has been very careful to repudiate what they call Constantinianism. That in the end, using coercion to promote and sustain the church probably is utterly counterproductive and that truth and virtue have to be mm. freely chosen. And I'm very struck, like somebody like Sarab Amari, you know, just wrote a piece in First Things, criticizing a very famous uh, historian of the church from the middle of the 20th century, only Daniel Rope for criticizing the essences of Constantinianism. And Amari's like, no, you need political power to enforce the faith. And I think in the end, you know, Jesus didn't say, uh, yeah. send forth all the armies. He said, you know, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, it was it was an act of persuasion and conversion. Not, um, um, and again, um, while well, integralism, there's only seven of them, but they have a huge Twitter following with yeah. young, uh, young. There's seven of them, but unfortunately, they're all at Ivy League law schools. So yeah, but they're they're quite fanatical yeah. and prudent, and um, um, and uh, they caricature the liberal Republican tradition as being you know relativistic and uh, all of that. And uh, um, and by the way, why do why do young Christians want to contribute to the burying of the American Republic? The American Republic, with its, you know, which still carried forth important residues of classical and Christian wisdom, is under frontal assault from the the culture of repudiation and the nihilistic uh, uh, left, while the integralists uh, applaud. Hmm. Burke said, prudence of the God of this world below, integralism is divorced of any concern from and any respect for prudence. Again, I don't mean hesitation. I mean that great virtue that allows one to approach moral and political things with both principle, measure, and discernment. You know, mm -hmm. there is a d direct connection between wisdom and moderation. Yeah.
And moderation doesn't mean, you know, not being able to make your mind. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, an affect of the soul that keeps you from being carried away by indignation and extremism. Mm. So to, to close us off here, because we're almost out of time, talk to me a little... Already? I know. <laughs> too short, too short. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about uh, the great man theory of history, something that I think you're kind of reviving a bit um, in the way that you discuss your book, kind of these these great thinkers um, and politicians. And without them, uh, you know, the wars, the great wars and revolutions of history just wouldn't have played out the same way. Yeah. Milton Himmelfarb was a great Jewish uh, man of letters, and the editor of the uh, uh, Jewish yearly Jewish Almanac, uh, he uh, he once wrote an article for Commentary magazine called "No Hitler, No Holocaust," making the point that it was really the ideological fanaticism Hitler it wasn't garden variety anti-Semitism yeah. that had been around for a long time. That didn't kill the Jews. Yeah, it was this insane mania and ideological project that informed. National Socialism as an ideology, which was the work of really a, a single man and his acolytes, Adolf Hitler. But, you know, the great man uh, his theory of history is a uh, polemical distortion. Yeah. No one who believes in human free will or the efficacy of human action or choice who rejects historical determinism believe that great men alone determine yeah. history. So I don't, I don't like that phrase because it's... Uh, as I said, it's a kind of pejorative. It distorts to recognize mm. that um, we have choices of concrete moments in history. You know, there was a meeting of the British cabinet, May 26th to May 30th, 1940. Five days in London, 1940, as the great historian uh, John Lucas put it in his wonderful book. Uh, and... Um, Churchill had to persuade some members of the inner cabinet, Halifax and Chamberlain and others, who wanted to sue for peace. Because, look, things look bad. France was falling. And he had to win the whole cabinet over so he could be himself, so he could lead this dogged struggle against Nazi tyranny. And that was a very, very crucial moment. Things could have gone either way, you know. And there are other, there were people in, um, you know, in the United States in the fall of 1865. George McClellan, the terrible general in the Army of the Potomac, was running as a Democrat against Lincoln, and he wanted a compromise peace with the Confederates, and he would have gotten one if he had won. And the only reason Lincoln won the election, he had an election during yeah. the Civil War, because he always said, you know, the destiny of a free people has to be settled by ballots, not bullets. But he won because the rest of the Union found out about the sack of Atlanta, mm. and suddenly the war was essentially won. And so Americans didn't take the easy way out of a uh, of appeasement and a troubling peace. So, um, though there are really all those moments, but I would say the ancient historians do tend to yeah. give the impression that it's you know great men make history. Yeah, they do make history, but it's more complicated. There are demographic factors, there are geographic factors, and. Uh, Tocqueville has a, we could end on this, Tocqueville has a beautiful chapter called uh, Historians in a Democratic Age, uh, Volume 2, Chapter 20, Part 1 of Democracy in America. And he says, in a uh, aristocratic age, there's a tendency to exaggerate or overstate the role that individuals have in shaping history. Yeah. 
But he says in a democratic age, there's a tendency to attribute everything to great historical forces, mm. to succumb to fatality and historical determinism. I mean, look, we have reigning doctrines in the academy that even deny the, the, the brain is the mind, everything's yeah. determined, you know, the human element, the human soul is abolished. Um, how can you have free politics if you think human beings are just predetermined? Tocqueville says that the belief in the efficacy of human action is not only true, but it's salutary because it gives us a sense that we're self-determining and it makes decent and salutary political and moral action much more possible. And Tocqueville says there's no, probably no doubt that in a modern age with the rise of science and industrialism and technology, which are in a way inexorable forces, that perhaps the, um, the place of individual, uh, 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 the efficacy of individual action is reduced, but he says it always exists. And so our task is uh, to remind ourselves, and Tocqueville wants to remind ourselves, so we can make a difference. And you cannot have Republican self-government or Democratic self-government without a certain confidence in human free will. Yeah. And Tocqueville says if you believe in these overarching doctrines, the deterministic doctrines, whether of history or biology or the human mind, uh, you destroy the human element. And as he says, um, we become uh, prisoners of fatality. Uh, and so, you know, the very line, last lines of democracy, I have a whole chapter on Tocqueville in here, who was also a statesman as well as yeah. a political thinker. But uh, Tocqueville says at the end of democracy, there are cowardly, pusillanimous doctrines that tell us we're completely determined by race, by geography, by history. And he says, no. He says, in a democratic age, our liberty is circumscribed, you know. We're not going back to the ancient city for all sorts of reasons we could discuss. But within our modern democratic dispensation, we have choices. The choice, for example, to be free or despotic. The choice between a self-governing republic and a cesarean or ideological despotism. So Tocqueville's point is there's always an element of freedom, always a margin of liberty. It's not absolute. Hmm. But in our age, we have to resist all these deterministic doctrines that are they're itching to abolish the freedom and dignity of human beings. And so I would say that's really what I'm trying to do, to remind us that something like the thinking statesman, something like a statesmanship informed by honorable ambition is a eternal possibility. Um, it's rare, but as long as human beings have a high-minded conception of, the, of what to do with their freedom. But, you know, as I said a moment ago, this culture of repudiation wars on that. Yeah. It turns all the great men of the past into villains to be canceled, and it teaches deterministic doctrines that enervate rather than building up, you know, what I would call like a noble civic self-confidence. Thank you so much, Professor. Super fascinating. Um, and the link to your book will be in the show notes. That's wonderful. Really a pleasure to do it, Annika. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Dr. Daniel Mahoney on statesmanship throughout history. 
We really appreciate you tuning into this conversation. If you want to learn more about us and what we do, you can find us online at jmp.princeton.edu. There's plenty of information about our events, including a lot of really interesting recorded lectures. So I'd really encourage you, if you enjoyed this conversation, to go check out more. We are also on Twitter at Madison Program, as well as Facebook and Instagram, and our email list you can sign up for on our website. Thanks so much for tuning in, and hope to see you next time here on Madison's Books.